You know, um, I wanted to address the subject this morning because I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I've had to say, why, God? What's up with this? How come? I was out with a deputy a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things he asked me while I was out with a deputy, he said, what do you tell people when they say, why do bad things happen to good people? And I said, number one, if somebody is really struggling with that in their own life, suffering, really there's not a good answer. Because when somebody's hurting, all the answers, all the rhetoric doesn't necessarily make them feel better. But what I'd like to do this morning is to give you a background of why bad things happen to good people. Why suffering? Why all this stuff? Why God? And I'm going to give you lots of scripture this morning, so fasten your seatbelts. And uh, we're going to walk through some things this morning. And I hope it'll be ultimately an encouragement to you, but also... Um, if you're suffering this morning or if you know somebody's suffering, it might be just a great opportunity for you to just grow in this whole perspective of why God. You know, when that question was asked to me, why do bad things happen to good people? I just want to share with you the first principle here this morning that I like, that seems kind of curt, maybe kind of short. But the first principle is there are no good people. There are no good people. You know, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say for some. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. You see, what's interesting about our culture is that our culture, for some reason, thinks that man is basically a good person. But in God's economy, he has a standard that's much higher than our standard. See, for us, it's all these degrees of good. In fact, a secular humanist might say that the average Joe on the street is a good person. When in reality, we know that from Scripture, that God's standard of good is perfection. It's sinless. And the fact that nobody is sinless means that nobody is good, not even one person. So we may define it in a relative term, but God doesn't have the relative side of it because God is holy and just and righteous. You see, when Adam sinned, sin entered the human race that corrupted God's plan for the whole planet and for humans. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, if you remember Adam and Eve fell together in sin and it said to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pains you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat of it. Cursed, then, is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust, and you are, and to dust you will return. So you have this problem on our planet, right? Nobody's good, and because Adam sinned, there was a curse, and under that curse, the whole planet changed. The the, the plan that God had was to live in the Garden of Eden, to be in absolute paradise in a sinless world, 
but as a result, there's a problem, and it's called sin. And so there's nobody good. That's the first thing we need to understand. But you see, when somebody asks that question of, 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 you know, how could good things or bad things happen to good people, what they're really saying sometimes is, how could a loving God allow something like this to happen? And I need to answer that question for you this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, it says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So God is the essence of love, right? So here's the principle number two I want to share with you this morning. Because God is love and desires our love, it must require a volitional act of our will. It would not be love if God created a bunch of robots running around and he forced us to love him. By the very nature of love, it creates a volitional act of the will. And so consequently, in this process of God creating man and woman, he gave them the opportunity to choose whether they wanted to love God more than themselves. And so a God who has been one who has been defined as love has been given the opportunity for us to make choices in this world. And those choices are often blemished by what? Our sin, because for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. See, the problem is, is a lot of people would like to blame God for a lot of bad things that happen in our society, in our culture today. And part of that is because they only define God as a loving God. But we need to remember that God is a holy God. God is a righteous God. He's an all-powerful God. And we forget that. And sometimes we want to pick and choose what our God is like. But in reality, if we don't create the whole package and we understand who God is, that he is a God of love and he's given us his free will, we're in trouble. Sin corrupts man. We make bad choices, and oftentimes it brings tragic consequences. Now, if, if, if I've been able to define with you a little bit this morning uh, how, what good means, but, but what about the bad? What are these bad things to happen to people? You know, what I find is ironic. We never really ask the question oftentimes, why do good things happen to bad people? You know, have you ever asked that question? I know David did. He was very frustrated. But let me just look at this. Based upon Scripture, we can see three origins because when we think about bad, we think about suffering, right? We think about tragedy. We think about something that's just catastrophic, like losing 19 firefighters. And we say, how could that bad happen to these good guys who are laying down their lives daily and risking their lives for us? Well, based upon, I think, three basic origins of suffering in Scripture, we can help define what this bad is all about. So first of all, number one, man is sinful, and Scripture says that sin must not go unpunished. Therefore, what I'm saying here is that some suffering comes as a result of our own sinful behavior. Some suffering comes from our own sinful behavior. And a part of that sinful behavior needs to be disciplined. And so consequently, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it says, My son, don't take lightly of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, 
because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So God in his holy and righteous mode, even he loves us and he, because he loves us, he disciplines us. And so sometimes our suffering is a disciplinary act from the Lord, but not always. But some suffering God allows us to have happen as a discipline. And what's scary sometimes, just like with our friend Job in Scripture, his sentence came along and said, Job, there must be, you must have done something wrong. I mean, because you shouldn't be suffering like this. You know, what's going on in your life? And there's a lot of people out there, that's the way they treat suffering. They somehow think that it's always your fault and God is disciplining him and God's this person with a two-by-four that's going to hit you over the head. We know that God disciplined the people of Israel numerous times for their disobedience and their rebellion. But secondly, some suffering is a result of just a fallen world. Some suffering is just a result of a fallen world. In John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And if you remember that story, this man had been blind from birth. And the first question the disciples ask is this. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Even the disciples kind of had this concept that the only reason why we suffer is because of our own sin. That he it said, who sinned this, this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus responds, neither this man or his parents sinned. This man was born blind as a result of universal sin, of just a fallen world. When the curse came, sin caused sickness, that cursed the earth, fires, if you will, brush fires. All those things happened when man messed up when man decided that he wanted to be God-like. Job was a great example of this because if you remember, like I said a little, bit, a little bit ago, his friends came along and said, Job, you must have done something wrong. And in reality, there was a whole different process that was taking place. And that's the third reason why we can suffer because suffering can be caused by the influence of Satan. Suffering can be caused by the influence of Satan. This is a great dialogue, by the way, and follow along with me in Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. It says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. So Satan says, Hey, look. Why shouldn't Job be a good guy? You've given him everything. He's got it made. And then he says, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So God allows Satan to come in and remove all of the things, the blessings that Job had experienced to test Job to see what he was really made of. I think of Paul the Apostle. You remember he said that there was a thorn in his flesh. And if you read scripture there, it says that it was a messenger from Satan. And so sometimes God allows Satan to influence us in our lives. And we suffer because of that. So the question we might ask at this point, then why does God allow suffering? Well, it's a good question. But C.S. Lewis writes this, and he put it this way, and I love what he had to say here, as he watched his wife die of cancer. And here's what he says. He says, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. 
It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. God's plan is for us to return to him and to lead the best possible life on earth. And sometimes we need to be reminded of our purpose. Pain is a sharp, clear tool to achieve that purpose. A needle may be necessary to prevent disease or infection. Nobody enjoys or welcomes the injection, but it prevents a far greater suffering. Just what may seem like even intolerable pain now will lead to a far greater happiness later. Why do we suffer? This is really interesting. Have you, have you noticed when a tragedy strikes in our country and there is pain and suffering? You remember back at 9-11? Tragedy struck our country. Over 3,000 people were killed. Where did people go to find comfort? The church. Maybe for a Sunday or two, Right? But it's fascinating to me that when there's pain and suffering, where's the first place in that people often turn? First place, they go to the church. When the 19 firefighters died and, and there was a prayer vigil out on the football field, thousands of people showed up. Why? Because they were feeling the pain of suffering. But what did it do? It drove them back to their creator. It drove them back to God. The pain shouted to them to realize how vulnerable we are for some of us, that's really needed. Just like with Job, if everything was always pleasant and wonderful in our lives, would we need God? Probably not. If everything's going our way and everything's happening in our lives, that's just Jim Dandy and it's all painted with our rose-colored glasses and we don't need God. But when suffering comes, where do we turn? We go to God. So in essence, what we're saying, why do we suffer? It's because we, we really need to be reminded that it's about him and not about us. There's a principle number three. And that is suffering reminds us of our great need for God. I don't know about you, but in my life, when I've been suffering and hurting and in pain, you know, it's kind of like the old story, when you're flat on your back, the only way to look is where? Up. It's hard to say, but folks, we need suffering, don't we? It's really hard to say, but it's the truth. You see, the reason why we need suffering is principle number four that I want to share with you this morning, and that is suffering is designed to build character and perseverance. Jeff's going to talk a little bit about that next week. But you remember what it says in James chapter 1, right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you have trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I will guarantee that many of you who have experienced suffering in your life, if God is doing his work in the midst of that suffering, you are a stronger, more Faithful, you've created a lot more perseverance. Your character has been built if you handle suffering in the way that God wants you to handle suffering. So here's principle number five. This is really an important one. Because when we are comforted in our trials, it gives us the opportunity to comfort others who are experiencing suffering. You see, what I love about this particular verse that we're going to look at in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Praise 
be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our troubles, that we may comfort those in any trouble with comfort we ourselves have received. In other words, what God says this, if we understand what he says when Paul talks about power is perfected in our weakness and grace is sufficient when we're really struggling and we really depend on God in the midst of our trials and our suffering, we become stronger and God comes alongside us and encourages us in our suffering. And oftentimes we get comfort from that because he doesn't leave us alone in our suffering, right? He comes alongside us and he undergirds us with all this strength. And when we get that comfort, there's a reason why he gives us that comfort because he wants us to use that comfort to comfort somebody else. What's really sad is when we kind of get into our little pity party and we get all alone in our suffering and we don't, and we don't understand how God wants to comfort us because he wants to use this in somebody else's life. That's what's really cool about how God's economy works. And the point is, is that you may know somebody who is suffering because you've experienced that same thing. And consequently, when you're sensitive to somebody else who's suffering with what you have suffered, you are the first person that God has really appointed to say, you need to go over there and encourage that person. So what suffering really does, it kind of helps us understand that, number one, he's willing to comfort us, but there's a reason for that. If it just stays with you and you don't realize that God may want to use you to encourage somebody else, You've missed the point. For some of you, you've gone through a divorce, you've gone through drug addiction, and you've been able to recover from that. For some of you, have been abandoned. Some of you had other issues that you've been delivered from, and God's helped you through it, and that you've been suffering from. And, and you now are the very person that God may put his hand on your shoulder and say, you know what, there are other people in your life who may be going through the same thing, and it's your job, I've appointed you, because you've received comfort, you need to comfort others. And that's one of the reasons why we suffer. It gives us the privilege of encouraging others who are struggling with the same thing that we've struggled with and receive comfort from the Lord. Amen. So as I talk about this, and I've tried to pack an awful lot in here in a short period of time. So if you understand these principles, these biblical principles, and you share that with somebody who's suffering, sometimes it's kind of empty and it's more like theological rhetoric. But it's really important for us to understand these principles, these biblical precepts. So what difference does that make to know all this? You take what we've shared this morning, you say, what difference does it make? Let me give you some ideas this morning. I never want to give you a message without challenging you to make a difference. So here's the first thing. I've just alluded to this. The best people to encourage those who are suffering are those who have experienced the same thing. Listen, if you have experienced comfort in an area of your life, whether it's been a rebellious child and God's brought that child back to you, and you've suffered through that whole process, whether there's been an illness that you've suffered through, whatever it is, you realize that you are the best person that God may be asking to encourage somebody else who's experiencing the same thing. Recognize that suffering is just not about you. It's about somebody else, perhaps, that God wants to use you to encourage. Okay? That's the first thing. So my question right now is then, who do you know right now that might be 
suffering who needs encouragement because you've experienced that same comfort and God wants you to go to that person to be an encouragement to them. Here's the second thought. The best way to encourage somebody who is suffering is to practice what I think are four basic principles. As a chaplain, I've been able to, uh, just recently, the young man who shot somebody over in Cottonwood, it was really a, a tough experience for him. I remember being in the room with him with blood all over his uniform and, you know, went through the whole contortion of typically what an officer goes through after they shoot. He threw up and cried, and it was just a very unbelievable experience for him. And, I, and, and you want to go into a situation like that as a chaplain and say all the right things. You know what I mean? You, you want to say the magic words to make them feel better. You, you want to have some scripture in your hip pocket to say, this is, what, this is what's going on. And you want them to feel better. So you, you kind of go in oftentimes feeling like, what's that magic pill that you can give to them, you know, that'll kind of help them out. But I've realized over the years, after 15 years of being a chaplain, that there are four things that God has always made clear to me. And this is something maybe that will be helpful to you when you come along with somebody else. Number one is presence. Presence. Just being there. You know, we want to say the right thing, but oftentimes it's just presence. I remember a friend of mine who was a chaplain at the, uh, the massacre up in Colorado. You remember that at Columbine? And then he was also at 9-11. And he wore a chaplain vest as he was walking around all of this tragedy. And what he found out was really interesting is that firefighters and police officers would just come and touch him. Just touch him. They didn't want him to pray necessarily. They didn't want him to say all the right things. They just needed to know and sense that there was somebody present there who represented God who was there to bring comfort. So a lot of times it's just being there. Secondly, I've discovered that it's about listening. You know, you want to say the right thing. You want to encourage. You want to, you want to say all these things. And really, in reality, what you just need to do is just listen. And oftentimes, I know when an officer has gone through such a tragic event like that in their own life, it's hard for them to share. It's hard for them to open up. And there's that kind of macho feeling that goes on in the department. But in reality, if you can just be a good listener, oftentimes they will open up. And it's the best therapy that they can ever have is to be able to talk about that incident and be able to open up and share, knowing that it's a safe place. So we need to just listen. Listen. And then pray. You know what I've noticed? When every, anybody's going through suffering or anguish or tragedy, they never deny an opportunity for you to pray. Have you ever noticed that? And, and even if they're totally, totally non-religious, they, they don't care about any spiritual thing, but you know what's really interesting? When there's tragedy and there's suffering, they're so vulnerable, they appreciate a prayer. There may be somebody in your office or in your workplace or your neighbor who's going through some stuff and you, you hesitate, you don't know what to say, but you know what? If you say, you know, could I pray for you? You would be amazed how encouraging that is to a person who is suffering. They really appreciate it. But then the fourth thing is practice. If you say, is there anything I can do? Just do it. Just do it. You know, a lot of times we say, you know, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Well, they're not going to let you know for the most part. Have you noticed that? You just do it. If there's a meal that needs to be brought or if there's, uh, you know, a lawn that needs to be mowed or if there's something that you need to do for an errand, just do it. Just practice it. Just go for it. 
Don't just say, if there's anything I can do. I know, I know our hearts are right and our intents are good, but a lot of times we just need to do it. Just go do it. And people will really appreciate it. So those are four things. And, and you know, it's not about necessarily quoting Scripture. You know, it's not saying to somebody in the midst of their trial to say, well, all things work together for good, and they're, they're dying inside. You know, and those scriptures are true and they're faithful and trust, but it's not the right time. You know what I'm saying? So it's presence, it's listening, it's prayer, and it's practice. Here's the third thing. We need to be alert to those who are suffering and take the risk to get involved. You know, we, we oftentimes as Human beings want to just kind of stay away from people who are suffering sometimes. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's kind of like, oh, man, do I really want to get involved? Do I really want to get mixed up in this? Do I really, do I really want to, to, you know, I know it's going to take some of my time and my energy, my emotional energy. I'm just not sure. And I want to encourage you, take the risk. Take the risk. Get out of your comfort zone. There's somebody, like you say, a neighbor or somebody in the workplace, and you know that they're hurting. Take the risk. Get involved. Yeah, there's going to be times where we're going to get burned and we're going to get frustrated. It's maybe going to take some of our time from, from our own selves. But isn't that what we're here for? Greater love has no men than this, right? Then he lays down his life for his friends. Here's the fourth thought. When people are suffering, they're the most vulnerable for the gospel. Don't forget that. People need Jesus. And I know that there's been many times in my own life when people are at that point of suffering, oftentimes when they don't know Jesus, that's the most vulnerable time where they could use Jesus in their life. Now, we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and those kinds of things, but remember that. that when people are suffering, even though they might be the most antagonistic person, I, I'll, I'll remember Pete. Maybe some of you were here a few years ago when I brought my friend Pete up here who had just had a stroke, and he was the, the SWAT team officer for the training officer for the SWAT team in Phoenix. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, Pete is so far gone spiritually, he has no clue. And he's the last guy on earth that I think would be vulnerable to the gospel. But when his wife was dying in the hospital at a point where he was at his lowest and he couldn't control something, I said, you know what, Pete, you need to give your life to Jesus and your wife to Jesus. And he did that night. So you never really know, and I think it's really important for us to realize that suffering, again, it's pain shouting at that person. And when we're suffering and the pain shouting, what do we always kind of revert to? God. So it's an opportunity to share the gospel. And here's the fifth and last thing. We need to, no matter what, suffering is a part of God's plan in my life and in the life of others. He didn't say, consider it all joy if you encounter various trials, Right? He said, when you encounter various trials. It's a part of God's plan. It's a hurtful part of God's plan, but aren't you glad it was a part of God's plan when Jesus went to the cross? You get it? You know, when we suffer, we get to identify with our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's many times I know in my life when I've been at the bottom of the, of the pit and feeling really sorry for myself, I think about, wait a minute. My Jesus knows exactly how I'm feeling. Amen? We need to know that no matter what, suffering is a part of God's plan. So let's take a moment and stop and pray for a minute. As you're 
your heads are bowed, and as you're thinking through this, you know it's been good to remember what happened two years ago. It was a tough time in this community. It was a tough time for the firefighters, for the chiefs, for the first responders. It brought this community together in a way that probably never would have been brought before, and we know that by God's grace, some people have come to know Jesus Christ as a result of that. Father, I, I come to you this morning thanking you again for being in control. You're a sovereign God. You knew those 19 firefighters were going to die on that hill. But I'm also reminded that every one of those firefighters knew how to have a relationship with you. And you gave them, even if it was a moment's notice, an opportunity to cry out to you. God, thanks for the folks that have been touched since then. And I just pray, Lord, that you would sensitize us a little bit more to the suffering that's around us. Help us to take those risks to get involved, to encourage others, and to be reminded that suffering is a part of your plan. It hurts, it's ugly sometimes, and we don't understand it all. But God, you've always loved us, and you said you would never leave us or forsake us. So for that person here this morning that maybe is suffering, maybe they're struggling, God, I pray that they know that power is perfected in their weakness, and you won't leave them alone. And if there's somebody in this room that knows of somebody who is suffering, God, I pray that they wouldn't leave here without feeling the little poke of your Holy Spirit to maybe go get involved and take a risk. Thank you for reminding us again of your love and your power and great glory. Thanks for being a loving God, but a holy and righteous God as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.